This episode is sponsored by World Anvil. World Anvil is an award-winning world-building and writing software for people who love to create rich and exciting worlds. Dungeon Crawlers. We would be honored if you would join us. Dragonlance started 37 years ago, and diversity and inclusion were were not really big topics um, 37 years ago. And so I kind of I, I, I kind of uh, felt like I needed a gut check on that, and so I I went over and I pulled out um, my copy of Dragonlance Adventures, you know the old hardback that uh, that we had done for uh, AD and D at the time uh, in the world setting, and started going through it, uh, and um, was really delighted and surprised and not surprised perhaps but delighted to see to find that Dragonlance um, even then was tremendously uh, diverse and tremendously inclusive yeah um, uh, Theros Ironfeld was uh, represented very early in the books yep. and um uh, and down through the years, we've heard from so many, uh, so many of our fans uh, who are so delighted to see a, a character in a D and D world, a prominent character in a D and D world that w- had some ethnicity. Um. Uh, and and the more I got into it and and realized that um. um uh, there have been a lot of people who've been concerned about um, um, uh, about um, racial stereotyping, mm-hmm. uh, in particular as it comes to like alignment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, he's a kobold, well, he's lawful evil, or he's chaotic evil, or you know, whatever, whatever that moniker is that the game put on those yeah. uh, on those characters. And as I looked, I looked at Dragonlance and and realized that we had a whole section in the Dragonlance Adventures book about floating alignment and how alignment was determined by character action rather than arbitrarily based on uh, on their class or their or their race. Nice. So you know, it's it's it was actually pleasing to me to. Uh, uh, to go back and have that gut check and and realize that we had and have uh, from the beginning strong uh, female characters. Yes. Um, uh, Lorana has this great progression through the books um, where she starts out a little bit on the kind of dewy-eyed um, elven princess side, but really grows into herself and becoming an, an independent and strong general yeah. uh, of the armies. Um, Kitiara, nobody wants to mess with her. She's, she is her own woman and she, she faces life on her own terms. Yep. And, uh, and for that matter, Tika was the same way. Yeah. And so these strong, strong female characters have been part of Dragonlance from the very beginning. So, uh, you know, after the gut check, I'm, I was feeling pretty good um, about where we came from and, and 
very much determined about um, uh, about the uh, about the future. I know that someone that had concerned themselves about were concerned about Kenders. Mm, I love those characters. Yes, and and you know, I, I though as I as I've thought about characters, the reason Car- uh, the Kender became the way they were is because I objected to thieves as a class. Mm. Um, I didn't like the idea of people playing thieves, but there was a whole skill set that came with thieves that were kind of needed okay. in uh, in dungeon crawling. Um, and so we came up with the Kender, and, and the Kenders, uh, interestingly enough, I think, um, the Kenders tell us more about our obsession with um, things mm-hmm. and material objects uh, than they do about the Kender themselves. I mean, the, the, the Kender just don't care about ownership i mean it's just not part of who they are they're that bad neighbor that borrows stuff and never brings it back you know (laughs) and it's not that they're it's not that they're bad people it's just that it's just that they're not overwhelmed or obsessed with the ownership of things the way the way that we are we you know as human beings we have a tendency to go to war over who owns what stuff and uh that's just not that's just not important to the kender yeah and, and locking your door means hey you're you're having a party you know locking the door means is pretty much an invitation because why would you lock your door if you didn't want me to come yeah yeah exactly. yeah that's pretty that's pretty much it no i mean Dragonlance was great but you know growing up that's you kind of hit on it. it you know there wasn't this like wow all the guys were the greatest things and you have these damsels in distress no i mean the women were just as involved as the guys were um you know, like you said, Lorana uh, definitely became this mighty general. Tika, that was just a barmaid, ended up being just as important as, as Caramon and Tannis in the war, especially with her frying pan. Um, it, it was great seeing just general everyday characters. There was no racism, no agendas or anything. Everyone was equal. Uh, it seemed like, you know, like you said, Ther- Theros Ironfeld, he, you know, he ends up losing his arm and then gets the, the silver arm and can towards the lances which uh yeah i always found that fascinating and fun and even the villains were important uh and and played an integral part in the story a good villain it um is absolutely convinced that they are the hero Mm -hmm. agreed a good villain always needs to be convinced of the rightness of their cause and um, because otherwise they just get kind of snidely whiplash on you and they're not very believable or understandable. Um, the best the best villain, villain is the villain that is absolutely convinced that they are doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, that comment right there is something that we've talked about on the show multiple times. We've talked about how the difference between a hero and a villain is one choice or sometimes it's put one bad day. Uh, that's the difference between a hero and a villain. Both heroes and villains, typically speaking, not always, but typically have an ideology, some belief that is at their core that drives them. And that drive will push them into the fires of death if it has to. And because of that, either that makes the hero dangerous for villains or villains dangerous for heroes, right? It's that belief. 
it, that that concept is so fascinating. I love that you have that belief when you're writing here when you're writing villains, because uh, we we want to avoid the trope of there's this villain who just wants power, just wants to rule. Of course, there are villains like that, sure, but they're not as um, they're not sympathetic, right? It's hard for an audience member to say, you know, it's hard to, I realize who the heroes are. I realize who the villains are, but sometimes it's hard to choose because I understand where they're both coming from. Mm -hmm. And um, I, the, the film Serenity, for example, I think has one of the best villains of all time because the guy that's fighting against Mal and the other, and the other uh, crew of the, of Serenity, uh, he is an absolute believer and you can't you can't defeat him in his position of belief until you defeat the belief. No. Do you find when you're writing when, when you're writing your characters when you're writing your heroes or your villains? And actually, I want to focus on the villains for right now. When you're writing your villains, how do you get yourself into that mindset, or like how steeped or deep do you get into their belief so that you can do them justice? Well, I think that they're the their objectives and their beliefs and their and where they're coming from is absolutely essential now whether that is a delusional belief or you know depends on the depends on the character but i i much prefer a villain who has who has who has an absolute moral conviction that they're correct um uh or 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 is flawed in, in a particular way that makes them blind to the, the basic uh, fallacy of their conviction. Um, uh, it, it, it's interesting that one of, um, one of my favorite villains uh, is um, uh, Strad von Zarevich uh, from Ravenloft. And uh, he is interesting because he's a true monster. He is um, uh, he is blind to his own um, failings, and and is so self-absorbed that he, he cannot see um, the the gaping hole in his his reasoning and in and in his logic. Um, uh, Lord, uh, Lord Soth is very much the same way. Um, Lord Soth certainly is, is convinced of the rightness of, of himself and believes himself to be, um, uh, believes himself to be uh, the person who is wronged in all of this, even to the point of believing that the gods have wronged him in this if the gods really understood what he was going through then then they'd have they'd have excused his terrible behavior and uh, and and things would have been just fine um and that's you know that's that's true for that matter of, uh, of the gods themselves tachesis doesn't want to take over the world just to take over the world because she's bored on a saturday night she's taking over the world because she believes that she can run it better that that her way truly is better and and that's you know that's 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 the essence of a really great villain um if you look at the harry potter series um there are a lot of villains in the harry potter series and quite frankly i think voldemort is a really weak villain uh a weak sauce villain yeah um 
the one that I find to be a, a far more frightening than Voldemort. Um, uh, was um, why I can't think of her name now. Oh, she wears pink. Yes, right? she wears pink. Yes, you know uh, exactly who I'm talking about. Umbridge. Yes, yes. Professor uh, Umbridge. Yeah. Yes, I agree. And she is she is the worst of the villains in the Harry Potter universe because she is so absolutely convinced of the rightness of herself that it justifies any cruelty that she can mete out uh, in, in order to bring the world in alignment with, uh, with her viewpoint. She is a far more frightening villain to me than Voldemort ever was. Yeah, truth. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. Uh, I, I, I grew up Irish Catholic, and so I basically got raised on the old Irish tales and, and uh, dirty Irish Catholic jokes. Uh, and then I went to Ren but and then I went to Renaissance fairs and I was playing an English peasant and I was kind of doing storytelling uh, a little bit, but not really great. But this guy stripes, who was a minstrel storyteller, and when they called him stripes because all of his clothes were striped. Uh, he, uh, he took me under his wing and he was, uh, he was the gleeman before wheel of yeah. time. Right. Great. So, well, so the gleeman, the, the Robert Jordan borrowed heavily from, uh, like actual mythology and cultures. And oh, things. Yeah. Right. Right. That was his, that was his thing. That was the right. point of his story. And gleeman are an actual, uh, Irish storytelling tradition. I have a gleeman's cloak with the little tatters of, of, fabric but the thing that robert jordan left out is that in the true gleeman tradition the fabric represents a each swatch of the or each patch of fabric represents a story and people can go pick the story that they want wow that's way so, cool yeah and so and so he took me under his wing and and so that's where my career as a gleeman storyteller began um and, but the reason i call it bard for life it be, because people will call me a bard and because of irish catholic baggage i don't want to accept that mantle because bard in irish culture has this huge weight of cultural baggage hmm. i've never been to a bard at college i don't tell i speak i speak irish very very poorly <laughs> um and uh so but i call the show bard for life because if i said gleeman for life only people that read robert jordan would have any idea what i was talking about <laughs> and the pun wouldn't work that's true right that's true so yeah uh how much experience for the bard no uh that that's a reference <laughs> one of my favorite nerd movies uh actually speaking of being a storyteller i want to dive in to a discussion about your book and I hope I'm getting the title right. The nine tenths memoir. Yes. The nine tenths memoir. Okay. Ah. So, so I'll, ad I'll admit I haven't had a chance to read very much of it, but <laughs> I have read the first several pages and I am sucked in. Like, tell him how many uh, chapters, how many pages before you were hooked. Uh, okay. So first page, there's an adjustment period because it's written in a very unique prose. Right. Uh, so first page adjustment period. But second page, I found it interesting. And uh, Matai and I were talking before the show. I was on page six. And I'm like, I can't stop reading this. This is incredible. This is like uh, you and I have 
certain threads in common. And in, in my previous life, before I became a professional <laughs> nerd, uh, I was an English major, love the Bard, Shakespeare, you know, all that stuff. I also have like a performing background, things like that. Uh, we, should talk, we should talk ballroom sometime. But anyway, uh, the point is, uh, I, I was reading through your chosen prose, how distinct and unique it is, and I could not help but just be intellectually both stimulated, captivated, and um, intrigued by what was being communicated there. Can you I, – I don't want to spoil it for the people at home, but – well, so uh, I'll just I'll this? just off the top of my head give the first couple of uh, first couple of lines from the first page because I haven't memorized. Oh, nice. <laughs> we has words. We writ them down. These no words in mouth. These no words in head. These be words we has writ down and can kept. We we does not know if we can kept words in the later or something. Uh, and that's yeah. where it starts to words fade from out. afore words from afore. Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, I have a, th I, uh, in 2016, I did a challenge to myself over the year. Uh, I was like, can I write a flash fiction story every day? And I did. And then in 20, uh, towards the end of 2016, I started uh, my, my MFA in fiction. So 2017 and 2018 was largely dedicated to the MFA. In 2019, I was like, okay, I want to do another thing, but I don't want to do the flash fiction thing again. Uh, but I want to do a basically a daily writing challenge. Uh, so what I did is I was like, can I get a journal? This one right here. Ooh, visual aids. Yeah, so I got this journal, and I said, can I write a novel a page a day for a year and make it work? Huh. And then I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to write it a page a day, I'm going to frame it as like a journal or a memoir. And uh, then what I said is, okay, now how do I make this interesting so I'm going to stay invested in it over the course of the year basically day by day by day by day and then i got i can't even remember where the idea came from but i was i was like i i had the idea of um sort well i had in my in my mfa in my fiction mfa i wrote this essay called why can't fantasy be more fantastical and i want because i'd been reading other stuff that ha that was linguistically uh interesting and i was like why are why are we not playing why are not fantasy writers playing more with the language why is it this default of theeing and thouing i remember i i one of the books that i i had asked if i could read one semester was the goblin emperor hmm. um and i got uh, like a chapter and a half in and the the snooty academic one started talking and kneeing and nowing and I, and I threw the book across the room and told my teacher, I can't, I can't, no, I know I asked for this, but I can't finish this book. It's, <laughs> it's just like, I'm, I'm over that. Right. I, we should be, for me, we should be in this great, like, we should be in this huge renaissance of fantastical literature where we're playing with voice and we're playing with form and we're playing with setting and so much of it still defaults to um, 
late medieval, early Renaissance Europe. Right. 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 So, and so then the, the idea was I was going to play with a weird accent and then, and then the character just happened. And so the, the premise is slight little spoiler, but the premise is what after the day, after the epic battle between good and evil, a little goblin creature can spontaneously read and write, but not terribly well. And it's his memoir. I, yeah, I've, I've been loving this story and I, started reading the story first. I noted that it had 365 chapters. Uh, and, I, and immediately <laughs> I thought, oh, is this, was this a yearly thing? And then I went to your website and, yep. and, and yes, that was, that was the case in the story you just shared. Uh, but wh- where'd the title come from? It was a, the nine tenths project is what you call it on your website. This is the right. nine tenths memoir. Uh, is that something we find out during this? Cause I haven't reached the end of it yet. Where'd that, where'd that come from? The nine tenths part, the nine tenths, you got to read it to find out. That's oh, okay, fair. that's fair. You gotta you gotta read it to find out. And and the transition from the nine tenths project, because I was posting it daily on my Patreon too, patreon.com slash M Todd Galloglass. Nice. <laughs> uh so it was so it was on my Patreon, and so you you all have it easy because you are you are reading it, you can you can just burn through it if you want. My Patreon, my Patreon, or my patrons for Patreon, they read it daily, mm-hmm. and there were sometimes there were some there were a couple of times where uh, stuff happened in my life and I slagged off, but then I caught back up. Um, but they 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 had to read it daily, and a lot of the a lot of the stuff that happens later is I'm working on creating like little mini cliffhangers every single day because Scheherazade is uh, amazing right uh, right and so they were like but uh, and oh I made them mad <laughs> you made them the right well, I, kind of mad right yeah I, I'm really really enjoying this story and normally I I try to read through things very quickly and mm-hmm. I really wanted to have this book complete before this interview because of the prose, because the words aren't spelled right. It's weird. It's weird. What's happening in my brain because I can't just look at a word that I'm familiar with and I've read a million times. I have to actually process it phonetically before I can right. get to the semantics of, I'll, of the word. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the weirdest thing that happened uh, while I was doing this. Cause I wrote it by hand. It took me a while after doing this because then what happened is uh, um, after I finished it, there was a lady that I was really, really into my first big like attempt to romance after my divorce uh, and 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 to try and win her affections. Uh, I hand wrote a copy for her and sent it to mm. her. And then one of my readers oh, wow. bought bought uh, bought. I had for a while. I said, you can buy you can own it. And so I wrote it back out. Again, so I have written this book by hand three times. Holy smokes. So, but what happened was, as I was doing that, it took me a long time to... uh, to to rewire my brain back to normal english because i would and and while i was writing it uh, like i would even because i would write a page and then i type it up on my on my on my patreon uh and then i would message people and they go oh you've been working on that book right and i was like and i'd look at the thing and i would i would be in the voice of that character like it, it it and there are still even still now sometimes um if i'm really getting going with because i'm doing 
right now I'm doing the same thing with a couple more books, uh, the page a day thing. Um, uh, because I really enjoyed that process that I, I sometimes catch myself going into that character's voice. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and so like, I, I, I rewired my brain in the writing of this book and it's, um, and, and I still, ha I still have so much like visceral fondness for, for this book. And um, yeah. It, it, this is one of those things that is, it is what proves the don't judge a book by its cover kind of a thing, because you think it's one thing, but then you get into it and it really grabs you. Now it's time to chat about our sponsor, World Anvil. World Anvil is an award-winning world-building and writing software for people who love to create rich and exciting worlds. With their software, you can create your world, manage your campaign, plan your novel, create a world wiki, wow your players, make novels more interactive, and make your worlds come to life. You can find them at worldanvil.com, and if you put in the discount code DCR40, you will receive a 40% discount today. I, this is, I mean, this is exciting. Uh, I mean, we've kind of seen over the last few books, the threads being pulled, uh, especially Menzo Berenzan, where things are changing. You know, in the early books, the main houses really had an iron grip on things. Now things are changing. Those threads are being pulled. Uh, well, the main house created the greatest heresy, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they decided Loth is a witch that has to be rid of the main house in the city. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting where it, the story has traversed, where it's been the strict devotion to Loth. And then, you know, uh, house Ben Ray is now like, Nope, she's got to go. And now all this craziness is happening. I, that's, that's gotta be fun to write as well as interesting to have these characters kind of make this transition. Well, in a fantasy setting, Menzo Berenzan is really an example of a dictatorship that can't, that doesn't end. Mm -hmm. it, it's a closed society. There's no escape. I mean, what made Dritz unique is not that he wanted to escape. It's not that he tried to escape. It's that he tried to escape and didn't get killed right outside of Menzo yeah. Berenzan. That's what makes him unique. So you have a society that is under the iron fist and the propaganda, 24-7 propaganda of a demon queen. She's not going to die and leave it to her incompetent kid that maybe you'll be able to break the cycle. There's nobody else coming in to save you, and you can't get out. And you don't even know what's going on out there unless they tell you. You know, when I wrote that, um, that poem for the Sleep Sound video that Benedict Cumberbatch read. Which was, was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That, this is what they're taught from the beginning, right? This is what the drow are taught, that you can't go above. They'll kill you. There's no, there's no rest up there. It's only down here in the safety. And so when people, you know, and that's why with everything going on, this is, it's been in my mind from the beginning that what's going on in Menzo Berenzan is you have, a, it's not some draw or evil thing. It's that you have a society that has been captured by a dictatorial demon queen. Yeah. And they have no way to break her, her spell. And the people who, go along with this dictator who go along with the corruption who go along with the the vileness are the ones who are rewarded the most so you have you have all the commoners in menzel baron's on they're just trapped 
and they have no understanding of what's different outside of their boundaries, which is why, you know, someone like Jarl Axel going up and taking over Luskin and then trying to rule the city so that they want him to rule the city as opposed to being like this tyrant lord. Yeah. Or Dritz escaping and surviving. Uh, so just really quick, how many books have you written about Drist and his people and his adventures and his companions? How many books have we gotten to at this point in, in history? Okay, I think the one I'm working on now, just of the core Dritz books, is number, well, that would include the cell swords with Jarl Axel and Trary, would be 39. 39. I think. And then we have the collected stories, mm -hmm. you know, the anthology. And then we have uh, One Eyed Jacks, the, the audible original novella. And then we have the Stone of Tomorrow trilogy that I wrote with my son, that are drift, kind of drift side stories. And the Cleric Quintet. So, you know, add them up. That's like 40, 49 different things. <laughs> You're right. I have about 48 books I have to read. And, and I have every one of them. And, I, <laughs> and the reason I ask that is because, I, again, I'm, I'm completely... I'm very new to the world of Drist. I, I've, I have read through the Crystal Shard, but uh, not the whole series. Um, and uh, for those people who are listening who are fascinated with your contributions to the world of D&D &D and, and Forgotten Realms and, and have heard of or seen or in some way know about Drist but aren't as well-versed as some Daniels I know, uh, <laughs> could you give us a could, – could, are you able to give us like a verbal primer that – gets us at least to the book prior to Glacier's Edge? Because you said Glacier's Edge is the second of a trilogy. Therefore, is, is Dao of Drist the third in the trilogy then? No. Dao of Drist, in, in all of the Drist books, well, first I wrote the Crystal Shard series. That was uh -huh. the first trilogy I wrote. And then they asked me to go back and do a prequel. This was before Star Wars made prequels a thing. I just want yes. to point that out. Yeah. You did it before like it was cool. It was like 1989. And they said, um, you know, people want to know where this guy comes from. So... I decided I would start each section of the book as I break them up into three or four parts, sometimes even five. I would start that with an essay by Drift. And those essays became their own, like they have their own life. I get emails about them all the time. Some people hate them, think he's being preachy. Other people realize he's talking to himself. He's not telling them anything. He's trying to make sense of the world for himself and they love those. Mm -hmm. So I've been getting letters for 20 years can you put all of his essays together in one like journal? And that's the Tao of Drist. Glacier's Edge is the second book. Starlight Enclave was the first. And the third book is, I don't know if they've said the title yet. So this may, you might be breaking news here. <gasps> but I can't tell you. So. Okay. There you, go. <laughs> you might be breaking news, but you won't. Yeah. No, because the title is perfect. The nice. title fits beautifully with the whole story of Dritz. No, oh. leave it at that. It's just perfect. The series, is, the Dritz books are really kind of like uh, Sherlock Holmes, Indiana Jones, James Bond, right? Where I think you can pick up almost any book in the series and have fun with it. And that's what I've always been going for. But really the break points have been, you know, we had the first 10 14, whatever, first like four sets. I think Thousand Orcs was a break point where a whole bunch of new people came on board because mm. that's when that's when Harry Potter was huge and the Tolkien movies were coming out. And they had orcs in the title, right? 
perfect. Oh, and that Todd Lockwood cover for that book was just amazing, right? The wraparound cover with Dritz fighting a thousand orcs, essentially. And then I think we had fourth edition, which kind of it advanced the world a hundred years. And so right from when they told us about that, Ed Greenwood and I, and I particularly were plotting on how to fix it after mm -hmm. they realized that advancing the world a hundred years was probably not the best idea they ever had. <laughs> and so I was plotting for the, the book called the companions, which came out. And that's like another jump on point for people where you have the rebirth of, of some people with full consciousness who are trying to, it's almost like the companions is the book. That's like, if I knew then what I know now, when I was in junior high or high school, that's what the companions is. It's a way for people to evaluate what they've already done go back and start over again with what they know. Um, but it also advanced the story a lot because from the companions through the companions codex through homecoming, those, the next two trilogies, and then the, the series, the two series I've done with Harper Collins has all been leading up to next year's book, which will complete the cycle of the legend of Dritz, so to speak, full circle at the end of next year. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, I'm not saying it's the last book, but it's the, it completes that cycle yeah. of Dritz. I don't know what, I don't know if it's the last book or not. Honestly, I really don't. So you could start with Starlight on. You could read Glacier's Edge without having read anything before. And I think you'll have a blast because these are all entirely beginning, middle and end stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. with a cliffhanger at the end, right? At the end of the crystal. But I've been doing that from the beginning because I wanted job security. So at the end of the <laughs> yeah. crystal shard, Bruna tricks Drist into going to help him find Mithril Hall. And Regis just walks into 10 towns, into one of the 10 towns and sees Adamus and Trary there. I didn't yeah. even know who Adamus and Trary was. I just wanted a really bad dude that would make people know, uh oh, Regis is in trouble because this guy's looking for him and Regis is scared to death. That's how I do it. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the, the great thing about all these books is, you know, they are little self contained uh, trilogies, so to say. You can just jump in, read that, and you're good. You don't have to invest in the entire series you can just pick up a trilogy and go yeah. and you have a fully contained story but if you want more you can go out and get more i think the best thing for me honestly is that you know a lot of people started these books back when they came out and they're now in their 50s 40s 50s 60s where yeah. i'm still still reading the new books as they come up but every now and then they'll go back and they'll read them all over again and they'll find all kinds of different things in them that they hadn't seen the first time like the essays, man, I, I love those essays. I don't know why people are dogging those, but, you know, those essays throughout the years, there's times where they're just as poignant to myself as they are to Dritz going through them. It's it's easy to convert that to something going on in my life. So those have always been fantastic. Oh, people, there are people who complain about everything. Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they think Dritz is preaching at them. He's not. He's talking to himself. It's yeah. a journal. He's talking to himself. He's not he's not talking to you. He's trying to make sense of the world. He's not always right either. Yeah. Quite often in those essays, he's wrong. Well, if, if I can jump on that for a second, I think oftentimes when people feel like they're being preached at, it's because something has resonated, something has pricked yes. at the inside, right? Like you say something and there maybe there's a little bit of guilt or shame or anger or bitterness about something. And so it, it may not have been directed at them, but they felt something. Yeah. And that's sort of the whole purpose of of creating worlds is that you're exploring even in these like alien uh these 
fantastical, these magical realms, all we're really doing is exploring aspects of what real life is. And so what it's, it's inevitable that at some point you're going to hit a chord inside of another human being. And if they have a negative reaction, that should be something that they should investigate further, not somehow, quote unquote, blame you, you know, blame a fictional character for preaching at them. What, how does that even work? You know, I think you put that beautifully, right? I mean, the when I started writing, you know, I was 29 when I started writing professionally, but I actually started, I think I wrote Echoes of the Fourth Magic, my first book. It was 1982, so I was 23 years old. Um, but when I started really writing the Dritz books and really you know, quit my job, became a full-time writer type of thing, I was, you know, I was a young guy full of confidence and thought, full of energy and thought I had the answers. And, you know, as you get older, you realize you don't know anything about anything. And the, quest, the job of an author is not to get people answers. The job of an author is to get people to ask the questions of themselves, find their own answers, because it's going to be different answers for different people. Especially yeah. when you start talking about thing, things like the meaning of life and what comes after you die and the meaning of religion and what place it has in your society and, and the meaning of community versus individuality. When you start touching on subjects like that, different people are going to have different opinions. Yeah, and absolutely. I almost feel I almost feel like I'm kind of an outcast now in that I accept other people's opinions, and I think that's <laughs> awesome to hear them if they're different than mine because that's the only way I can grow. Now, there that's a uh, a unique and innovative concept, right? Uh, that didn't used to be so uncommon, but these days it's like if you disagree with me, it automatically paints the person as as an enemy, or at least they accept you as an enemy, and it doesn't have to be that way, right? You know, there's an interesting phenomenon I've, I've witnessed with that is that people will say and act in ways online, especially in social media, that they would never do in person. Mm -hmm. Because in person, there is everybody has at least some degree of empathy, which leads us toward being polite, diplomatic, tactful. And it's like it, where you'd say, you know, I don't know that I agree with you. I think this instead. Uh, and on social media, that same sentiment is expressed as, you suck, this is awful. How could you possibly think that? They should tie you up by your heels and flog you. Exactly. You know, it, it's, it's just incredibly indecent behavior. It's Unacceptable called behavior. Spine, right? Yes, yes. And so when, when somebody writes a book, it comes from a place of passion. This drives them enough that they wanted to form words to this idea. And even more, they wanted to put it out there to share with other people. When someone picks up a book to read it, it's because there's something in the teaser, the cover, the synopsis that speaks to them, that tickled something. That they said, you know what, I want to investigate this some more. I want to see what's there. And they may like it, they may not like it. Whatever the reason, there was some attractive force for both authors and readers that got them into into a book. And I think that, that we don't reverence that little seed of passion, that little bit of interest. It's like, if you were interested, but this turned out not to be something you, that, you, that you really liked, that's good. You've learned something and you can, you know, use that to refine your tastes in the future. But if you did like it, then it's like, this is great. You've added some joy to your life. The author yeah. experienced joy creating it. The reader experienced joy reading it. And not everybody's going to get the same joy from the same thing. But if we can celebrate the joy that maybe I didn't get, but somebody else did, or if somebody else celebrates the joy that I received from a movie or a book or something like that, does that not make our world a better place? He should have been on the show forever. That was great. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs>
He's one. Of, he's one of my favorite that's, people. It that's works spot out. on. Somebody once, you know, uh, I, I once told someone I, I I went up to guest teach a class. Terry Brooks was teaching a class in Southern New Hampshire College. I lived wow. near there, and he said, "Want to come up and do a guest lecture for me on this day?" I said, "Great." And I walked in there. And it was, it was, these are wannabe writers, and you know, they're, they're people just beginning. They're all excited, and they're, they're ready to go. They're writing their book, or maybe they've written their book and they're getting ready to publish it. This was many years ago, before you could just self-publish like that, right? And so the first thing I asked them, I said, who here has gone up and put a one-star review of an author in the genre you're writing? And a bunch of hands went up and I said, you. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody looked at me and I said, do you understand that writing a book is like being in the second grade and writing something you think is wonderful and then getting back the page with red marks all over it from the teacher every day of your life? And you also understand that when you criticize a book, you're not criticizing the author. You are, but you're also criticizing everybody who found joy in that book. Yeah. Why do you think you're so smart? Remember, the force will be with you always. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find us.